1: Welcome to Out of the Comfort Zone History. We don't often take a deep dive on historical figures, particularly when we're trying to look at the choices that effective leaders have made. But perhaps we should do so. So too many business books tell us the story of one leader, but they tell it from one person's perspective. And we often don't know until decades later whether that choice the leader made led to great things or to not so great things. But when you take a look at history, it tells us where the choices led to good outcomes for the most people or not so good outcomes. We have the retrospective that gets a perspective. So today, we're going to take a look at history. And the prime question is, which leaders do we gravitate to in times of stability versus in times of crisis? And what does that say about how you should think about your own leadership in the situation in which you're leading? And I think you're going to find this is going to be a fascinating, highly relevant perspective, even though you might say, eh, history. Stay with us. With me today is Mashik Temkin. Mashik is a distinguished visiting professor of leadership and history at the Schwartzmann's College, Shinghua University, and a fellow at Harvard University's Belfer Center for Science and International Affairs. He has taught in just about all the wonderful places in the world. Harvard, Columbia University, École des Hautes Etudes in Paris. He's been a visiting professor and lecturer in India, South Korea, Spain, Mexico, France, and the United States. His articles have appeared in the New York Times, The Nation, Journal of Democracy, New Republic, Los Angeles Times, and we could go on. The new book, which I highly recommend, fascinating read, Is Warriors, Rebels, and Saints The Art of Leadership from Machiavelli to Malcolm X. Mashik, welcome to the show.
0: Thank you for having me, Wanda.
1: I'm super looking forward to it. First, let me say seriously, I really did enjoy the book. You know, I don't often pick up a book and read kind of cover to cover, and I did on this one. It was really fun. But I I gave my sort of half answer on why study history. And I admit I'm not a particularly good student of history deeply. But why do you tell people they should study history?
0: You know, it was funny when you said, uh, you know, history, uh, who needs history? That's how I felt for a long time at school. It was not my favorite subject. Even in college, it wasn't my favorite subject. I think uh, for the longest time, like many people, for me, his studying history was you know, trying to remember names, dates. It seemed like things that are gone, the past, irrelevant, who cares, we're living in the present, we're thinking about the future, right? So that was uh, sort of my reaction. I had other preferences until uh, it dawned on me that what, when we're studying history, we're actually studying change, we're studying how change happens, and in fact... History teaches us who we are as a world today, as a society. Uh, We can't understand where we are at this point in time. We can't understand the state of the world without understanding history because history is the process of change. right? And then especially I got into the question of leadership. So the interaction between individual or group leaders and the circumstances that they face find themselves in i think that is what drives history as you said sometimes to positive outcomes sometimes to negative outcomes and sometimes add to outcomes that are debatable you know we we often our political even our political debates the, the way we kind of agree or disagree about the state of the world about what we think is right or wrong is really about our interpretation of history Right. Do we think that something that happened in the past is a good thing or not? Not a good thing. Is it important or not important? So for me, history is really about there cannot be something more relevant for us today. You know, it's not dead. It's not the past. Uh, You know, there's that scene in The Sixth Sense, which I'm sure many people have seen, at least my generation of Gen X, where, you know, I'm not giving too much away, where he says, you know, the kid Collie Culkin says, I see dead people. That's me. I, I see dead people because they're very much with us, right? They're all around. They made the world that we live in today. So what better way of understanding our world and leadership today than looking at history? That's how I see it.
1: I have to say the book gave me a new sense of hope because it reminded mm-hmm. me that whatever craziness I think we might be facing at this moment in time we have faced it before in ways we often don't realize. And so right. that, that was kind of a cool, like, okay, we've been at this juncture before, and we figured our way through. Um, I want to come back to something you right. said, just to acknowledge that history is also, awesome, you know, works for some people and not so well for some others. So the outcomes mm-hmm. are good for some and not for some others. And I think that's probably a state of affairs pretty much on every major event we look at. Um, mm. We always like to think my side is the right side, but you know the truth is there are winners and losers in every event, and it's no different. How we see that tells us what we want to do today. Okay, now, you um, start the book, and you say you start your classes with a question. So I want to ask your, your view, your answer to that question. I want to start right at the start. Does history make the leader, or does the leader make history? And why do you think yeah. that?
0: Well, that's a good question, Wanda. And it is my question, the question that I start every class with and I start the book with, and it's a tricky one because if you take any significant leader in history, um, it can be anyone from, let's say, Abraham Lincoln uh, to uh, Mao Zedong in China. You know, you, you can go through a gallery. there are uh, significant figures, so they made history. But they themselves, their position, their arrival in power was made by circumstances, made by history, produced by history. So it's really about studying both of those things. Now, the reason I pose the question is because to me, that's really the debate about what is important about studying leadership, understanding leadership. Do we want to look at what creates important leaders? Where do leaders come from? you know, what is their, um, how are they forged? How are they made? Right? What, what are the crises that, that, that produce them? Just a series of questions that you might ask. And you'll always find that important leaders have that kind of background to them. It's not accidental. They don't come to us from the sky. They're produced by history. But at the same time, really important leaders also change the world. So, the other way of looking at it is, well, you know, do you want to look at the way that these leaders actually enacted change, right, impacted the the world around them? So, I think I have a tendency depends on the mood I'm in on a particular day. I think that some days I'm really interested, oh, I really want to see how this particular leader impacted uh, society. Uh, and change things. But I on other days, I might say, hmm, where did this leader come from? Where did this, you know, who was their family? Where did they go to school? What what, what formed them? What childhood experiences did, did they have? So the reality is, I'm kind of giving things away. There's not one answer to this question. It's actually that tension between both of those possible answers that the the the, lead, the history makes the leader and also that the leader makes history That is really what's most fascinating to me about studying leadership.
1: That's an interesting one. I certainly watch business leaders um, for whom I know they start with a particular predisposition that time and circumstances will elaborate, exaggerate, or flip the polar opposite So I see people start in one way, and there's a series of crises, and they go to a very different way of leading. So I, I see them both rise to the occasion, fall to the occasion, and I see them shaped by the occasions. At the same time, they certainly bring their own background, history, predisposition to every situation. And in fact, the that would say that that is the lion's share of what drives leaders. At any rate, it's a, it is a fascinating tension to watch in the world. All right, one last question before we dive into the stories. Okay. You started the book also at the very beginning to say that you think we make a mistake by listening to biographies of business leaders. And I made that argument at the beginning. But if you look at all these stories, they're usually stories from any business leader, male or female in the current time. Everybody's writing a bio or some how I did it book. And it's largely around larger than life personalities, a lot of grit and persistence, a create it my way, take no prisoners, kind of go forth and care for people, bring them together. It's the team, some version of all of that. But why do you think these books are not particularly Helpful when we're looking at historical figures or leaders. Well, I
0: think you you pointed out the both the, the appeal of these books and also the the, the ultimate limitations of them. So um, you know, most of us we we like a good success story, right? We, yeah. we 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 want to see how someone overcame adversity and you know was able to to triumph uh, and 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 become the person that they are today. That actually. Then writes a book, uh, or has somebody write a book for them, but or writes a book themselves that that you see in the bookstore when you're at the airport or you know somewhere where bestsellers are sold. Um, and I I enjoy these books. I'm sure many many people listening to watching us enjoy these books too. And you can learn a lot from them. But I think what they do ultimately two things. One is as you you say they they give the sort of the very often a one person's perspective if it's an if it's a memoir or not a biography and it's that person's perspective and most people are what i would call unreliable narrators not not because they not because they want to deceive or manipulate but because we all have a particular perception of the world um but it's not necessarily the way other people might see things and we might have a view of ourselves that is not the way that other people view us so You get, you learn more about a person's self perception than maybe about what they actually did or what they actually accomplished. That's the first thing. Second thing is that I'm very skeptical that one person really is the entire story of anything. So we have a society and a culture, I think, that um, are very individualistic. What I mean by that is that this is the ethos that we grew up in, especially in America, right? It's every man, woman for themselves uh, in a way, right? And we pull ourselves up by our bootstraps. And there's a lot of emphasis on winning. And there's especially a lot of emphasis on the kind of individual struggle. And we don't pay enough attention, I think, in general to the, broader factors that enable a person's success or even a person's failure. So to take a kind of a general example, I think in America, we have to take into account whenever we look at the business world and we look at success or failure in the business world, that to begin with, we're looking at a society, we're looking at a country that really favors the business world in a sense, right? It's part of the ethos of the country. Right? So there's already a lot of momentum uh, from the get-go for business, for the corporate world, for the private sector, It's just seen as the engine of the economy. They're seen as the job creators, seen as the favorites of our political leaders, right? And they have a lot of influence on our politics, as everybody knows. So already, structurally, systematically, We're in a world in which business is very powerful. So within that world, there is competition. And within that world, uh, there is, of course, variations of success and failure. But we already have to remember that, that there are so many things that happened historically for people who succeed in the business world to be where they are, that we have to take those things into account if we want to understand why someone is even in that position to to write a bestseller. We can't just attribute it to individual success. It's a whole history, a national history, a social history, an economic history, a political history of leadership that uh, made that possible, right? So I think that it's not that I want to diminish anyone's individual importance. And I think that we still primarily understand the world and we understand leadership through individual cases through individual stories but history isn't just about one person history is always about interaction between a person and a world around them the interaction between different people right and the more that you zoom out the more you see the patterns so that's why i think i'm coming at it from a direction of okay The book that I wrote has individuals, of course, in it, and you're you're going to bring them up, I'm sure. But we also look at cases where you can't identify one particular individual is more important than the others. And you're actually sometimes looking at leadership that is composed of many different individuals, right? They're talking about groups. We're talking about collectives. We're talking about different kinds of models of leadership. So what I'm suggesting is, Let's step out of our very hyper individualistic kind of conception and model and let's see if we can see, let's see if we can sort of look at that interaction between the individual and the broader society in the wider world.
1: I would argue nothing could be more important than for the corporate world. To recognize that it's not an individual leader, it's in a history of a company, it's in a society, it's in a world, it's in an economy, it's in a drive and a need and a demand. Uh, There's so many factors that make a business successful and there happens to be somebody leading that business. I think it's much more there happens to be somebody leading that business in this whole context. And yes, I think they have an impact on it, but not all of it.
0: Wanda, day it occurred to me, just to give an example, essentially it's not in the book, but I think it's important, and maybe you know our uh, yeah. the viewers will, will understand what, what we're talking about. I recently reread the case. Of it's an it's an unpleasant case, but we have to talk about it. it's a case of um, Elizabeth Holmes and, and the Toronto scandal, um, and and it's a you know there's already been the Netflix and and the book, a best-selling book, and, and and it's a case study already, but look at how long it. It took Mm -hmm. for this case to be exposed. The Wall Street Journal had already been writing about it for years before it actually kind of, you know, exploded. Right now, why? Because there were so many things working in favor of specifically Elizabeth Holmes, factors like where she's from, where she studied, who she went to school with, who her parents were. Uh, All the different advantages that she had, the reputational advantages, the educational advantages, the fact that she was so sought after by, you know, people who were the most powerful people in the world. Um, This is a situation where, you know, she had a lot of wind in her sails. um, And the reasons for that are historical. It's like, what kind of society do we have? What do we prioritize? Who do we prioritize? Right. And. Do we listen to whistleblowers? Do we want to listen to whistleblowers? Look at who's on the board of this company. It's the leading luminaries of the world. And when they the, you know, someone like that goes to a, a panel, they're sitting with President Clinton and Mr. Tony Blair and et cetera, et cetera. So these are structural issues. You can't understand how dramatic the rise and fall and how long it took without understanding the history of the place of innovation and corporations like that in American society.
1: That makes, you answered a question for me, which is why does it take us so long to uncover mistakes, errors, lies, whatever the case is, and it is because there's a whole fabric that's tying it together. So we're back to your point about needing to zoom out in order to see the pattern that it's not just an individual actor with a character pro or con. It's a person in a system in a moment in time. Okay. All right. So let's turn to a kind of a moment in time then. So I love the statement. Um, history is about the study of change, that history both create makes the leaders, and leaders also make history and therefore make change. They have a huge impact on us. And that, as I just said, With history, you can zoom out to see the patterns, not just focus on the individual. You see the context, the structure. So let's take a particular case. And that is, you know, who is it that we turn to? So in times of crisis versus in times of stability, we might say peace if you're looking at world politics, when things are comfortable versus when there's a sense of crisis. Do we turn to different leaders in those moments in time?
0: Yes, I think we do. Uh, We don't always turn to the maybe the, the good leaders. We don't always turn to the right leaders. But you can see in time, over time in history, that when there is a crisis, and by crisis, I mean a really severe crisis. It can be a national crisis, it can be a global crisis. There will be a change in leadership. New leaders will emerge and people will start taking sometimes a very, a closer look, let's say, at the leaders that they already have and examining whether, or judging for themselves, whether these are the leaders that they actually want in this new crisis. Uh, and they might judge that they want a different leader, someone else. And then the question is, who do they turn to? Yeah. So one example that I get from history, which is to me is, the, is a classic example, is the Great Depression of the 1930s. Uh, I I love teaching about the Great Depression, not because I love teaching about suffering and economic misery, but because it's such a great interaction between severe economic crisis and transformation of, of leadership, both nationally and globally. So I don't think that people today even quite understand just how bad the Great Depression was. Right. When the great when Wall Street crashes in November nineteen twenty nine, it happened after a decade or even more of economic prosperity, at least in terms of markets, and a kind of stability, the 1920s, stability, um and uh business was booming. And the president at the time of the Great Depression, when it when it started, was Herbert Hoover. Now, Herbert Hoover was a very popular president in 1928 when he was elected. He was a man who had never held public office before. He was a very successful entrepreneur. He was a humanitarian. Um, He was an expert in a lot of things. And he's even a moving personal story because he built himself up. Uh, He came from a fairly modest uh, background and he really made a name for himself as an expert, right? So not seen as a politician, seen more as a public servant. But it turned out that when crisis hit, and it was very bad, he was not the man for that moment. He was a man who was really meant for a time of stability. He had great managerial skills, uh, but he didn't have the right kind of political skills and the kind of political reaction that was necessary for a time of crisis. Because when crisis hits, when you have... 25 to 30% unemployment, when families break up, when people start starving, when people are jumping out of windows because they can't provide for their families, when it's that kind of devastation, all kinds of devastating, perverse things happen. For example, in Europe, societies turn to fascism and Nazism. That's the the rise of Adolf Hitler to power in Germany is a direct result of economic collapse that spread into into Europe. And what happens in the United States? Well, in the 1932 election, Franklin Roosevelt wins the election, and he is uh, someone who hits the ground running. Right, The first 100 days of his administration are considered to be the most consequential in American presidential history since Lincoln. And it's really the creation of the New Deal. Now, the New Deal is still very controversial today because not everybody thinks that government intervention in the economy is the solution uh, to anything. But the fact of the matter is that Roosevelt put people, his administration, put people to work uh, it raised their morale, created a safety net, uh, transformed the relationship between government and the economy, making the government much more central to the economy, and to economic policymaking. And most historians will tell you, he actually saved the system from collapse, saved American capitalism, and saved American democracy from the fate that it could have uh, met that European countries had seen going in the direction of communism or fascism, just generally revolution. Right Now, Roosevelt grew up actually in great privilege, grew up very wealthy in the Hudson Valley, upstate New York, as did his wife, another you know very impressive person. Eleanor Roosevelt, you know they were cousins uh, that came from the same place. Um, but it turned out that even this sort of privileged person who grew up in a very princely manner turned out to be someone who could really talk to the people. Uh, he could communicate. The fireside chats, that ability to identify with people's problems, to convince them that he was working on their behalf. So it's not that he transformed the economy overnight and all of a sudden things were great. It's that he gave people hope, and he convinced them that there was a better future ahead. And he won four elections by landslides. Right? They had to put put in term limits after that, so you know that that wouldn't happen again. Uh, he's the you know that that was the last time we had a. Four term, he died in the last in the beginning of his fourth term. But four term U.S. president—that is unprecedented. So Franklin Roosevelt was very controversial, and I should also say he was ruthless. So you know, sometimes in moments of crisis, Wanda, we have to make compromises. And what do I mean by compromises? Is that sometimes we have to put niceties aside, and we have to put our uh, arrangements aside and our agreements aside. So to give you an example, very controversial thing that President Roosevelt did. In 1937, there was uh, the expectation that the Supreme Court was going to knock down some of the New Deal measures, especially the ones concerning the minimum wage and another one concerning Social Security. These, by the way, were the two measures from the New Deal that most helped poor people, struggling people. And Franklin Roosevelt as president didn't react the way we would expect a liberal democratic president to react to say, oh, well, the Supreme Court is speaking and we, you know, this is the constitution. We must recognize the constitution. He said, no, my friends, I'm sorry, but uh, the people are struggling. The people are starving. They elected me to enact the new deal. This is an urgent matter. And so... I am going to uh, try to appoint as many judges as I need to the Supreme Court until you decide that it is constitutional. And eventually, the Supreme Court changed its mind. Now, some look at this and say, well, Roosevelt was actually taking the step in uh, toward authoritarianism or dictatorship. But the other way to look at it is, well, there might not have been a Supreme Court or a constitution to defend anymore if people kept struggling and they would not be able to be helped by the, the New Deal. Who knows what might have happened? So in some ways, historians argue, Roosevelt, by not compromise, uh, by being ruthless on this matter, was able to save the system. And sometimes that's the leadership that you need in a crisis.
1: Right. It's interesting. There were other moments in his presidency where he did make compromises, some of which we might wish in retrospect he hadn't made um, but, you know, it's, it, it is interesting, this, do you pursue what you believe is the best at all cost? Or do you say, no, let me adhere to principles? And it's a very, that's a hard call for anybody in leadership position and the people around them, because it can't I enact it by himself. It's a whole host of people. And man, if you get that wrong, history doesn't thank you very much. If it actually turns out to have worked, then we say, good job, good choice. That's a tough one, though. And we we don't I don't think we give leaders in organizations enough credit for those moments of decision that are the really hard ones.
0: I think that's right. So, you know, I in in terms of looking at this in 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 the business world, I think that, you know, sometimes you have to make decisions that are uh, drastic ones. Right. So, um in, and usually it's the difference between, you know, uh, again, the time of stability and the time of the time of crisis In time of stability. You're probably making a large number of small decisions, right, that are very important to kind of keep things going the way they are. Things are going well. You don't want to rock the boat too much. You want to you want to kind of continue on that trend. You don't want to fix what's not broken. Uh, but in times of a severe crisis, first, you have to be able to identify the crisis. So to go back to that example, I think President Hoover was slow to recognize the the crisis itself. Um, and he wasn't really responsive to that change. I think it didn't sink in the extent to which he could actually intervene uh, and help as, as the leader, as the president. And I think that Roosevelt was able to at least recognize that crisis, understand that they were in a moment of crisis, and respond appropriately. Now, it could also be, Wanda, that if you switch the roles and put Franklin Roosevelt in a time of stability and peace, that would be disastrous. I think that what we see in history is very often, and you can see that in the business world, I'm sure, that there are leaders that you say, ah, this... This is the sort of leader that you want in a crisis. But when times are stable, when there's relative peace, they get restless. They get almost bored. They they create havoc. Um, I actually see that. You can. I think you can uh, see yeah, that almost sure. on a on a day to day level in all kinds of situations. And I I suspect that uh, Roosevelt was that kind that kind of president. It was a it was a case of really the leader meeting his moment.
1: Right. We certainly see that in the business world. In fact, it's one of my running jokes that if you take somebody who is a change artist, who's a go in and fix a broken system, you want to get them out of there as quickly as they get it fixed because then they get restless and start breaking things you don't need breaking. And they also don't have the persona, the style, the approach to calm people down and let them get back to a moment of stability. They're That's like, right. go, 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 change, change, change. And likewise, you find somebody who's really good in a stable, steady running business, they will not react to the crisis fast enough to change quickly enough. They're sort of slow. Exactly what makes them great in one situation makes them terrible in the other situation. So I believe it works on both sides. Um, I have mm-hmm. two questions about the Roosevelt Hoover story. Yeah. Back to your notion that it, when you zoom out, you get a bigger perspective Do you think Roosevelt was better at understanding how government could intervene because he was closer to how capital markets worked, given his background, his heritage, coming from money? And many of those people were his friends, the capitalists were his friends, whereas Hoover was less associated with it. Is that a fair interpretation?
0: Well, I don't know about that. I think that actually, you know, in some ways... Hoover was really a product of the American capitalist system. Let's not forget, Hoover was actually very successful in the business world. You know, uh, your question, which I, I will answer in a moment, raises a kind of a, for me, a, a, a meta question. You know, I often, people say, why do you choose the cases that you choose? I, You know, I look at Herbert Hoover and Franklin Roosevelt. In the case of the Vietnam War, I look at Lyndon Johnson and Robert McNamara. And I see that very often I'm very drawn to surprises. I'm, I'm, I, I think that sometimes what we see from leaders confounds our expectations. So when I look at Hoover and Roosevelt, in some ways, I would expect the opposite result. And it can be even sometimes disturbing to students or readers. Hoover, a man who came from a more modest background, who really built himself up. He knew the business world, actually. He, and he also knew he was a, an innovator he was a pioneer in many ways it's not so much a matter of not knowing how the business world worked roosevelt because he was from a you know he came from privilege he never had to struggle he never had to work his way up in the same way he struggled in other ways he got polio and that made him basically you know wheelchair bound for the rest of his life and um that was hard and he was already an adult when that happened and you know there were other things that he, that he had to face. But, you know, he actually grew up almost in a bubble, you know, right. a, a, told by his mother how special he was and dressed up like a prince the whole time. It's it's actually, you would expect Roosevelt to be completely unable to meet a crisis like that, whereas you'd expect Hoover to be the person to meet that crisis. But it turns out that it's the other way around. Yeah. So part of my job, Juan, as a historian of leadership is to stand, say, why? Why is it? Part of it has to do with personality. So it's not just about one's experiences. It's about what kind of personality do you have in moments of crisis? Roosevelt was someone who was able to go out, turned out he was able to meet people on their own terms. He really was able to connect. Now, these are things that sometimes are beyond our expertise. It's like you, you you don't have a clear answer. These are, you know, why is one person... Why was it when Hoover said... Prosperity is just around the corner. He said that. Prosperity, you know, very early on in 1931. Prosperity is just around. He's trying to encourage the people. But the way that he says it and the connection between how he's saying it and what, is govern- what he's actually doing, people looked at him and said, what in God's name are you talking about? Clearly, prosperity is not around the corner. And he came off as very aloof and glib. Uh, whereas Roosevelt gets inaugurated and he says, we have nothing to fear but fear itself. Now, that's just as much of a platitude as prosperity is just around the corner. But for some reason, that clicked. That hit. People uh, adopted that. And I think it has to do with a couple of things that we cannot actually uh, analyze in a very empirical way because it's about human psychology. It's about how leaders interact with people has to do with their charisma it has to do with their appeal it has to do with charm that they have their communication skills but it also i think has to do with matching the policy making so the first thing that people noticed about roosevelt and i know that he's very controversial historically not everybody loves him politically but no one can deny his energy the fact that he comes in and he starts you know, doing, okay, things. we're going to do this. We're going to do that. We're going to try things. And if this doesn't work, we're going to try something else. It's a crisis. We can't just sit and do nothing. People are struggling. And there's that acknowledgement. Whereas with Hoover, I think the perception was too indifferent, not, not, not active enough. And that, that's what you said before. It's like, okay, if you're, if things are going well, the stock market looks nice. Then you want a leader who actually knows how to sit back and say, okay, we're going to, you know, if there's a fire, we'll put out the fire. If there's something going on, we'll take care of that. But otherwise, my job is to just keep that gravy train rolling. But if you have, if the train is off the rails, people are falling off the wagons. No, now you need something different. You need somebody who's going to come in, and maybe it's because Roosevelt didn't care. You know, he was so insular. he was so confident. You know, he he had decided when he was a very young person. He wasn't he was a very mediocre student at Harvard. mostly an extracurricular activities kind of guy, Not much for studies, not a very big intellectual. But he decided he's going to be president someday based on what? Nothing, just as he had a great last name because he's a distant cousin of Theodore Roosevelt. Right, uh, pre- previous president who was a, a kind of a widely admired person at the time, um, and just this innate confidence that he had, that kind of translated well into a into a moment into a moment of crisis. So I think this combination of personality, experience, communication skills, energy in the leadership, but then also, and this is the most important thing, substance. Right, I don't want to just I don't want people to come away from this thinking it's all about just form or just about style or just about like, you know, uh, I don't know, communi- communicating things. I think it's really about the people were are looking at Roosevelt and saying, you know, I think this this person really is looking out for our best interests. Mm-hmm. You know, he's not perfect. And sometimes we don't like the way he's doing things, but he's trying to. Take care of us. Mm -hmm. And even if we're still struggling, I believe that with him in power, eventually we'll find our way out. That also is what carried him through World War II. Let's not forget, we've only been talking about the Great Depression, but World War II was the other side of this. And I think also Roosevelt met that crisis in a very impressive way.
1: way. So we have in Roosevelt a charisma. And by that, I'm going to define is the ability to connect to the emotions of the people, to recognize that emotion, to speak to them, to meet them on their own terms and have them feel that they were heard, for short of a better way of describing it. We have a lot of energy, try things, do things, get it going, make a difference. We can't just sit and wait. We got to do something. Some skill in understanding maybe what to do. But I think the substance piece comes down to some of it was starting to feel better. There there, there has to be some success in that. If it's just obstacle yeah. after obstacle, obstacle, and nothing seems like it's working, we lose faith pretty quickly, I think.
0: Yeah, I think, you know, we have a way of measuring economic. This is not just about Roosevelt. This is a general thing. I think, you know. And we see it in politics today. You know, a lot of our pundits and colleagues of mine in at Harvard other places are really perplexed. They look at the economic metrics. They say, wait a minute, the economy is doing really well by the way that, you know, economists uh, measure things. Right. By the way the, you know, if you're a Washington Post or the New York Times or whatever, you know, whatever it is, then they're looking at charts. They're looking at numbers. The economy is doing yeah. well. But then why are... Why are the people not recognizing this? Why is the president so unpopular? Uh, sure the previous president was also unpopular. You know, our presidents always seem to be unpopular, recently <laughs> at least. Uh, now, one answer that is often like, oh, well, people, they don't know anything. They're, you know, they're clueless or they don't know how to read charts. They're illiterate about the economy. Well, that's one way of going about it. But I don't think that's a very productive way for leaders. I don't think good leaders are dismissive of the public or of people who don't have the same kind of literacy that they do. I think that leaders recognize people on their own terms. So to give you an example, Roosevelt understood that even if the economic metrics are bad, let's say that the the markets are still weak or that the economy is not growing, if you actually put people to work, because that's what they were doing, they were putting people to work. Now doing what? For example, they'd hire people... To, now, they, of course, they had great infrastructure projects, you know, Tennessee Valley Authority and, you know, a lot of things that they were doing that were very significant. But they also like, would, the idea was you hire people and you put them somewhere and they're cutting rocks all day long. Why are they cutting rocks? They're, they're not going to do anything with the rocks. They're just cutting rocks. At the end of the day, you give them some money. You pay them a salary. Now, with that salary, they're going to spend the money mm-hmm. and buy things for their family. And now they're Now they have some money. Their morale goes up. They stay with the family, right? Psychologically, that's an immeasurably better situation than they were previously. It doesn't change the economy in the way that we look at numbers, but it it changes people's perspective and morale, and it glues, starts gluing society back together. So the idea was you keep people busy, you keep them active, you keep them employed, You keep them with their families because what had been the problem, you know, people had been leaving. Men were wandering all over the country looking for work and there was no work. And then, you know, mothers would be that's how we get the famous picture of the migrant mother, you know, in California. You get uh, families falling from poverty to destitution, which is a very bad situation. And their goal was okay. We got to start keeping the family unit in place. We start. We got to start doing things that keep our society intact, so that we don't collapse into revolution or something like that. That's that's how bad it was. So I yeah. think that yeah. we, today it's, we're not in that kind of situation. But I think that we lack leaders who have a sometimes a, just a more simple understanding of how people understand their own economic situation. It's not just a, okay. Show them a chart. But also tell them, okay, yeah. look, your life is materially better than it was, let's say, for your parents. And that's becoming a harder argument for, for our leaders to make.
1: Right. I don't want to diagnose our current political situation, but certainly don't want to go there for the U.S. and uh, or around the world, because I think there are various countries that are feeling this. But when you look at the historical figures, there is something about people's acknowledging the basic emotions mm. that people are feeling, And I think that's somehow what we're missing in the moment. What's the emotion? And the emotion is not about just the pure economics. It's about how I feel about my position in society, my opportunities, my future, morale in general, you know, the trust in institutions. I think there's a whole bunch of things that feel like the emotions are gone. And what's interesting about Roosevelt is using that great communication skill to be able to acknowledge the emotions in a way that comes across as credible to people. And if I could say to leaders one thing, like that one thing is going to get you more followership than anything, but you got to follow that with some substance and some action and some making some difference. All right. Last question on this Mm. particular topic, then I want to shift gears. When you look across all the historical figures that you you examine across countries, across nationalities, across time span, in a moment of crisis, do we always turn to that more charismatic leadership style? Are there times when we go the opposite direction?
0: Well, that's a tricky one because the charisma is-
1: Charisma is an interesting definition, but give me that connecting to people and that human touch. I think I think
0: in moments of crisis, and this is without getting into it, because different people, of course, have different political preferences. You just right. said that, and I don't want to get into all of that. But I think that people are going to be looking for a match between the 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 words and the action, words and action. Think that you know words are important. You know rhetoric is important. The communication is important. But do the words match the actions. And then when there are actions, are there words that explain those actions? And I think that what we see in crisis, in moments of crisis, is that those are going to be the leaders who are most uh, kind of, you know, uh, appealing to people. Because people want, uh, for example, if you're suddenly finding yourself in a crisis, you're looking for a number of things. First of all, I think the first thing that people want to understand is, you know, I know that I'm in a crisis, but what is the nature? What is what happened and who is responsible for what happened? Yeah. So you have leaders who can actually give explanations. They can say, you know, you're in a crisis now because, you know, this happened or because these these people failed you. or they can also go in a different direction. And this is can be an unfortunate thing. Um uh, there's a lot of scapegoating that is possible in these situations. Okay. Okay, You're in a crisis because all these people came into your country or you're in a crisis because this particular group of people didn't have your best interest. You know, they claim to be your fellow citizens, but they're actually, you know, against you, that sort of thing. And then a lot of people are often convinced by that. So those are explanations, right? So I'll be honest with you, Wanda. I mean, I, Wear my hat as a historian of leadership, but also wear my hat as a citizen, and I want to identify leaders who provide an explanation, but that the explanation itself is not a harmful one, it's not yeah. a manipulative one, and it's not a deceiving one. And and uh, unfortunately, we do see a lot of that. I'm not talking about America; I'm talking about worldwide, and we see it in history. Let's let's call a spade a spade, and Case of the the Great Depression, what happened in the world, some of the worst tragedies that we saw that led up actually to World War II, were a direct result of this kind of thing, where a crisis hits and then you get charismatic right. leaders right. who use their charisma to incite against people or to blame people for the misfortune of of their you know their public, right. and that can be very dangerous. Right. So I guess the answer one day is yes, people will turn to the kind of charismatic leader, but charisma comes in different ways. And different. and I think yeah. we 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 want we want to be wary of not kind of throwing the baby out with the with the bathwater and say charisma can't be good if it's used for the public good. And I actually equate leadership. Often people will say, well what is leadership for you, especially in moments of crisis. And I think leadership isn't just about getting people to follow you. It isn't just about winning. It isn't just about success. It's about doing the public good. It's about public service. And you can do public service whether you're in the public world or in the private world, in the right, business world. Right, and we right, see many right. examples of this. Right,
1: right. Just plenty. And there's many different ways of defining public success. All right. I recognize we're we're not going to have tons of minutes to pursue this one, but I want to shift from this particular question about crisis to a different form Uh, maybe as another form of crisis, but it's when a group of people decide that transformation is needed. We see a ton of these over history, and often they follow from some form of crisis, but not always. And the question I want to ask is, how do those transformations best happen? Do they best happen because we work within the system and we move through it, or they best happen because we're willing to break things in order to start all over, so is it the insider, or is it the outsider, is maybe a shortcut that leads to transformation? What does history tell us?
0: Well, one day so we, before looking at history, we look look at we watch TV shows or movies, right? And we know that there is the good cop, bad cop dynamic, right? Mm-hmm. And we know that uh, very often you need some combination of things to be successful. So, for example. Uh, in the book, I write a whole chapter about the suffrage movement in the United States, uh, which was a fascinating story, which I think is underrated. Does, actually, does not get enough attention, uh, or as much attention as it should. And the the leaders of the suffrage movement are not as famous as they should be. Right? They're not the kind of household names. I think that they should be, in my opinion, for any American schoolchild. Uh, and and they're simply not. So. We should talk about them. Now there were really two two approaches to this because think of it: America is supposed to be this great democracy, but fifty percent of the adult population, actually more than you know, about fifty one percent, couldn't vote, uh, and and just because of sex. So how do you get that to change? You have to struggle because we know that power is not just shared. It's like you say: I want a power too. I want to participate in the political process. Um, and people will just say, oh, sure, here you go, participate, give you all the power. No, no, people resist. You know, those in power resist. That's a universal story. And it was no different here. So the women who started the suffrage movement, which was more than a century of struggle to get the vote, to passing the 19th Amendment in, in, in 1920, had to fight through two means. One is this idea of, okay, you know, we have to work with the system. We have to work with politicians. We have to work with our political leaders in order to effect change, in order to bring this about. And then there was another wing of the movement which said, no, no, we, we have to really take it, you know, to the extreme. We have to protest. We have to, uh, you know, be much more militant. We even have to be, uh, you know, uncivil, as it were. Uh, And they wanted the same thing. You know, this is what's fascinating. You're talking about a movement that had different camps that really wanted the same goal, which was the vote for women, but completely different approaches and philosophies and strategies. So different, in fact, that the two camps were barely in communication with each other. Right. That's what's fascinating about. Now, if you're asking me which is the necessary one, I'll bet you that each camp thought that it was the necessary one. Right. If I had to adjudicate, I would say that when you, pro- when you progress institutionally, you might get to your goal eventually. In fact, you probably will get to your goal eventually if you're strategic enough and effective enough. But sometimes you have to get the extreme version, the more re- like militant version, in order to bring it about fast. You know, You have to have people who say at some point, I don't want this goal... Someday, or in 10 years, or in one year, or in 100 years. I want it now, right now. And and until I get, and I'm not going to compromise on anything, and I'll go to prison if Mm -hmm. necessary. You know, that's what they did. So I think it's always going to be a combination of those two things. But uh, often the leadership that people adopt in these kinds of situations when they want transformation really depends on their temperament. You've probably seen this a million times. Mm -hmm. There are leaders and there are just people. They're very kind of, you know, they're gung-ho and they're willing to kind of take things down. Right. uh, Dismantle the structures that they have around them. And some are saying, no, let's work strategically within. Let's make alliances and partnerships and proceed that way. And who's more successful? Well, there's a debate about that.
1: You know, what's interesting about this one, it brings me back full circle to my one fundamental principle I believe about leadership, that it is a perfect blend of yin and yang in any dimension that you want to look at. So do the times make the leader or the leader make the times? Both. Do I need leaders who can respond dramatically and emotionally and connect with people and take action and move things forward, give faith to people? Or do I want leaders who are calmer, present, slow, and steady? The answer is both. It depends on the circumstances. Do I lead people who want to work within the system and slowly increment the system and bring the system along? Or do I want people who will radically break the system, take dramatic action in order to call attention to it? the answer is both. And we're right back to that name. Any characteristic of leadership you would name is a yen and gang property. And the question is, how do we figure out which yen (laughs) to which moment in time to which circumstances? And where's your counterpart? Even if it's not you, it's somewhere else.
0: I agree. So I think it's about identifying the situation that you're in now. That's easier said than done and for me going back to the very first thing you said in our conversation one that's all about history history is our best laboratory for recognizing situations we're not we're not doing things for the for the very first time you know things don't repeat themselves but if you read history leadership in history hopefully through my book which i strongly recommend mm-hmm. then you'll at least be able to say aha this sounds familiar this seems familiar right. And we yeah. can uh, learn from it to apply to the cases that we have today. It's
1: fantastic. Moshik, I would love to keep talking. There is so much more that's in this book that's amazing. History Thank is about you. change. You want to understand how to create change? Look at history. My guest today, Mashik Temkin, the book we're talking about, Warriors, Rebels, and Saints, The Art of Leadership, from Machiavelli to Malcolm X. Mashik, thanks for being here for a great conversation. And join us next Thank week you, for Wanda. another episode. Yeah. Join us next week for another episode in getting out of your comfort zone.
0: Thank you for joining us today. Tune in for another edition next week with Dr. Wanda Wallace on the Voice America
1: Business Channel. Reach outside your comfort zone this week.